0: continue our series in Matthew, uh, The Power of the King. And the thing that we're talking about this morning is actually the compassion of the king. So Jesus as God, having compassion on individuals. And I think compassion is one of the things that we wrestle with a little bit when we look at God. It's maybe easier when we think about Jesus. But when we look at God, like we just saying, you're holy, right? Like you're above, you're, you're to be praised, you're to be glorified. And then to bring that down and say that you're compassionate, that you have an emotional response, we sometimes get a little uncomfortable with that, right? So I acknowledge the fact that I'm stepping into a theological debate that we're not going to have. Uh, So (laughs) there's a whole debate about whether or not God is emotional or not, he's impassable. There's all these different things, all these different definitions. If you wanna know my opinion, you can go read B.B. Warfield's The Emotional Life of Our Lord from the 1800s. That's maybe a little bit abstract, uh, but that's where I land. Uh, For something a little bit more readable uh, in 20th century language or 21st century language, Dane Ortland's book, uh, Meek and Lowly, I think it is. I know one of the small groups did it. I read that, it's very helpful. It talks about how Jesus loves people, that that's like his default response is to be compassionate on people. So that's where we're starting. So that's, we're skipping the whole debate and that's where I land. If you disagree with me on that, that's fine. Read those two books and then come argue with me. Actually just argue with Dane and Warfield, that's fine. I don't need to have that argument. Uh, But my point this morning is this, Jesus heals in his timing, out of compassion for us. So Jesus is compassionate and he does heal, but he does so in the timing that that he deems best. And that's because he's God. And so he gets to make that call. Uh, So we're in Matthew nine, and there's two different stories that are kind of woven inside each other that we're gonna work our way through this morning. So the first one starts in verse 18. Matthew nine, starting verse 18. While he was saying these things to to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So this story, both of these stories, are start off with interruptions. Jesus is having a conversation with John's disciples about fasting. We talked about that last week. And in the middle of this intellectual theological conversation, this guy runs in and he's like, Jesus, I need you right now. You need to heal my daughter. Uh, And Jesus responds with compassion, with love. Uh, This guy, it says he's a ruler... That's maybe not super helpful, where you think of ruler, we're like, I don't know what that is. This guy had a synagogue. Like there, the, he was the leader of a synagogue. So a synagogue would be at least 12 Jewish men meeting together for worship with their families, usually more than that. There was usually one synagogue per town and they would appoint one guy to kind of be in charge, right? So he would manage the readings and the structure and who was teaching that week and all that kind of stuff. So this guy is essentially what we would call a small church pastor. Like that's the equivalent in our day and age. The thing is, is most of the synagogues weren't necessarily positive toward Jesus. Like Jesus was a bit of an outsider to the religious establishment. So when this guy comes in and says, hey, Jesus, I really need your attention right now, he's a guy that maybe hasn't been super friendly to Jesus in the past, right? So Jesus having this very serious theological discussion, and this other guy comes in who disagrees with Jesus, who might not like Jesus personally, runs in and is like, Jesus, I need your attention right now which is kind of odd, right? And this guy's desperate. He's not doing this because he is so impressed with who Jesus is. I mean, he might be, but he's probably doing this more out of desperation than anything else. Like Jesus isn't his number one thought, let's go to that guy. Jesus is, I don't have any more options. Maybe this Jesus guy can help, right? Like he's tried the doctors, he's tried whatever it is, and he keeps, his daughter just keeps getting sicker and sicker. Here it says that she's died. And one of the other ones, it says that she dies when they're on the way. So we kind of assume that at some point in the process, she died, but this guy reaches out because his daughter is dead or near death. And he's like, Jesus is the only person that there's any discussion about him having any authority over death. So we're we're gonna go talk to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he kneels down. Kneeling is not a thing that most people do, right? Like you don't ask your neighbor for a cup of sugar on your knees. Like, that's not how you respond. Kneeling is like, I am desperate. I need this right now. And I acknowledge that you are the one in the position that can answer me, that can grant my, my request. And so, again, he's a synagogue leader. He's used to having authority over people. He's used to people respecting him, people maybe kneeling before him. And so this response is a lot out of character for this guy. He's, he's really honestly desperate. And Jesus responds to that with compassion. Jesus doesn't start off with, you know what? We were having this other theological debate and you were rude to me. I don't appreciate that. No, I'm not going with you. Or I'm busy right now. Can you let the adults talk? Right? Like there's none of that reaction with this guy in spite of the fact that Jesus may have wanted to. Right, he comes in, he's desperate, he interrupts and he's like, Jesus, I need your attention right now. This is important, this is urgent to me. And Jesus is like, you know what? That is urgent, let's go. Keeping in mind that a couple weeks ago, Randy talked about how Jesus healed from a distance, right? Like there was a centurion, a Roman, not a synagogue ruler, a Roman, a foreigner that had so much faith in Jesus that he's like, Jesus, if you speak the word, I know that my servant will be healed even though he's miles and miles away. And so that's a thing that has happened recently. Jesus doesn't have to go with this guy. He could heal the guy right there. But in compassion, he realizes this guy's desperate. This guy needs me to go with him. Not just heal his daughter, but he needs me there. Right? He needs Jesus' presence. And so Jesus says, yeah, I care enough about you, despite any history that we may have had, that i'm gonna go with you even though i probably don't have to i'm gonna allow myself to be interrupted and bothered by this and i'm gonna go with you because i care about you as a person and so they they're heading off to this guy's house his name is jairus we know that from the account in in luke i think so his name is jairus and they're heading to jairus's house we don't know how far it is but even on the way there they get derailed right in verse 20 we start the other story Matthew 9, verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, and said, Take heart, daughter. We're not going to finish that right now. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, This is another interruption. It's another desperate plea for help. Um, And it's a little bit odd. There, this woman's not allowed to touch Jesus. I mean, culturally, she's not allowed to touch Jesus, but there's also a whole load of other things where she can't actually touch him. So it seems like her bleeding isn't just like a random hemorrhage. It seems like it's connected to a menstrual disorder, which makes her ceremonially unclean, which when we, when we read that, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference to us. We're like, okay, that's a weird detail, Nate. Why are you bringing that up? I acknowledge that. In, in Leviticus 15 though, there's a whole bunch of details about how this makes her not okay for people to interact with. So if you're ceremonially unclean, you can't touch people because that person becomes ceremonially unclean until evening. Uh, if you, so any interaction that she has with a person, that's inconvenient for that person, right? Which means things like jobs aren't gonna happen because she can't be in contact with other people. Um, she has to stay a certain distance away from people just like to live. So she doesn't, she's not allowed to live in the same houses as maybe her family is. She's got to separate herself physically from that. Um, and any social situation that she's in, she has to be really careful to make sure that she's not transmitting her ceremonially uncleanness to the people that are around her. And so having any kind of community, any close relationships is really, really difficult for this woman. And it says that she's been there for 12 years, right? So this isn't, this isn't, she's had a month or a year of I'm struggling to build close relationships. She's got more than a decade of not being able to form close personal relationships with her community. And we don't know how old she was it doesn't say how old she was but it says that it's been 12 years so if it's been 12 years and it starts when she first becomes an adult or when she first becomes a woman then like she's what in her mid-20s right and she's lived her entire adult life without that or if it happens some point later in her life it's still been a decade and what that probably means is she's not married because if she was young when this happened, then she's not gonna be able to get married. And if she's older, her husband would assume this was like judgment from God and probably divorce her. Culturally, that would have been expected of him. Uh, and so she's, she's sort of suffered emotionally and physically and socially from this more than she's really suffered from the actual pain and the difficulty that comes with the, the, the physical issue that she has. To think this through, okay? Because we don't necessarily connect with some ceremonially unclean, that doesn't click with us. Think about COVID, okay? Think about the first six weeks of COVID when the only people that you were allowed to talk to face to face were the people that you lived in your house with, right? So you had some Zoom relationships and a bunch of people that you would like to talk to that maybe you didn't have the chance to. And then think about being at the grocery store and coughing. <laughs> and we all know what the emotional response is. Everybody looks at you and they're like, you're sick. You get away from me. Like there's this, this huge feeling of like, I'm sorry. It's just a scratch of my throat. I'm not sick, right? That's this woman's life. Like every moment of every day, she's got this awareness. I can't do anything. I can't touch anybody. I'm unclean. I'm an outsider. Everybody turns and looks at me in judgment anytime I do anything. That's where she lives. And she doesn't live that way for a year, right? Like we were like six weeks of that. And then a year of like, okay, don't cough in the grocery store. And then we're like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm just done. We're all done with this. We're moving on. Whether or not COVID is still a problem. We don't care. We're just done, you know, isolating at all, right? So this woman basically caught COVID, kept it, not just for the whole six weeks, not just for the 18 months. She's a decade into this, right? So that means if you caught COVID right at the beginning and you still have it, You're a quarter of the way there. Like, that's the type of emotional separation that this woman is dealing with. So she has a a physical problem. She's been bleeding for over a decade. She's dealing with all the physical issues that come out of that. She's got a social issue. She can't have any contact with people, right? She can't physically touch anyone, She, she doesn't have the ability to build those close relationships. She's an outsider, she's isolated, she's judged. She's got a financial problem. Luke says she spent every penny she has on doctors trying to solve this problem. It's still not solved. She's got a religious problem. She can't join corporate worship. She's not allowed inside the temple. She's not allowed inside the synagogue because she's ceremonially unclean. She can't actually go worship with the people of God. And so she's she's desperate as well. And I, I don't want to compare her desperation to Jairus. I think that's unfair to both of them. They're radically different. But they're both desperate people that don't see an option other than Jesus. And Jesus, again, responds with compassion. That's his default response. My first application question to you is this, how do I respond to an interruption from someone in need? And I don't like this question because it's convicted (laughs) for me. Uh, Like we see Jesus, Jesus is in the middle of this good solid conversation with some friends of his, some, some friends of a friend, right? Having this theological debate, Jairus grabs him, interrupts him, this is super urgent and he goes. And then as he's going, he gets literally grabbed by this woman on the way, and he stops, and he turns, and he faces her, and he addresses her. Not out of anger, not out of resentment, but he deals with that in a loving way. I'm irritated enough with one interruption. If you interrupt my interruption, I'm like really? Are we going through this again? Like my, my default response outside of the Holy Spirit working in my life is not good. And even like this week, as I've been prepping this, I've been like, man, there's a couple people in my life that I'm like, I do not want to respond to that person with compassion. I know this. Their problem is their problem. I know, Lord, I know that they did these things. That's their problem. That's not on me. And that's my default response in my own sinful heart, right? And yet Jesus is like, hey, Nate, by the way, you created a lot of your own problems too. And guess what? God had compassion on me. So we need to actually react in compassion when people interrupt us. And, and I struggle with that. I assume that I'm not the only one. It's never convenient. It's never fun. But these interruptions are sometimes the places where God can make himself real. Like not only in our lives, but in the, people, the lives of people around us. But as we follow Jesus, we recognize he loves me. He allows me to be inconvenient for him, right? And then I can allow that to kind of flow through me. So Jesus responds to this woman very personally, very specifically, and with a huge amount of compassion. So I want to look at Jesus' response to this woman kind of piece by piece. Verse 22, Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. So you wanna talk about being present. Like we all struggle with that, right? We, try, we struggle with being present. We struggle with being in a moment when our phone is there. So we gotta like turn that away from that and deal with the, the moment that we're in. And Jesus is very much present. He turns his attention away from Jairus and he turns fully to this woman and he engages her where she's at. The first thing he says, take heart, don't be discouraged. And, and this is important because she is taking an enormous risk. Like she's been this outsider for a long time and she's taking a huge risk. Jesus looks at her and he says, I see where you're at. I understand the courage that it took for you to just reach out and grab. I understand that that was difficult and I want you to know I love you and I'm validating that, right? Like take heart is like be encouraged. Like you can do this. I believe that you're doing the right thing. David Platt says this, you are not lost in the crowd before Jesus. He's intimately aware of every single detail of your life. He knows your struggle and his love for you is extremely personal. In the middle of the crowds, you have his attention. Though not in some self-centered way as if the world revolves around you, but because you are a child of God. Jesus is attentive to your deepest needs and you have his affectionate attention. Just think about that in the middle of the crowd this woman reaches out she grabs jesus and jesus turns to her and he's like i see you i care about you in this moment i think about in my own life sometimes just that person like that verbal validation is an enormous help i, I there so okay i've received a lot of compassion in my life i don't want to you know I have a lot of people around me that love me okay that's really what that comes down to that's not i'm so great that's everybody around me but as an adult i think one of the first times that a person that wasn't a family member that reached out to me was jason raju so jason grew up here we went through youth group together here we went through you know college together Uh, He was at Wayne State, I was at U of D. And so we knew each other the whole time and we served on a couple different serving teams together. And I remember one time when I was going through a couple different things, like kind of struggling with not my faith, but just like the direction of my life. And Jason, like we weren't, it wasn't like a big thing. He was just like, hey, how are you doing? And not like walking past me, hey, how you doing? But like an actual, like stop face me, look me in the face and be like, how are you doing? He wanted to know. He cared enough to actually ask that question in a genuine way. And that for me was like, whoa, this person cares. Like he actually cares about my answer. And, and that was really helpful for me to recognize that there was somebody out there that just validated the fact that I was struggling at that moment and wanted to listen and was willing to listen was available and, and cared. And it wasn't, you know, my dad or my mom or somebody that like had to care, I guess, in my mind, but somebody that was just a friend of mine that, that genuinely cared about where I was. And and Jesus kind of has that same thing when he says, take heart. He's like, listen, I see you, you're in front of me, but I want you to know that that I'm validating the fact that you're here and you're grabbing my attention. And he continues as he says this. He says, daughter, take heart, daughter. So probably 20 years ago, uh, Herb Cocking preached a message from this pulpit when it was a pulpit, it's not a pulpit anymore. (laughs) He preached from here, and and it was from this passage. It was from this, this story, I guess, but it was from Luke. And the title of that message was Two Daughters Meet the Master. And that impacted me because of this daughter. We don't know this woman. We don't know anything about her, but we do know that from a family's perspective, she probably didn't have anyone that cared about her that much. And yet Jesus reaches out to her and says, I love you like I love a kid. Like, I love you the same way that a parent loves their child. And I, so it's not just the take heart, it's not just the be encouraged, but also you as a person, I love you as you stand in front of me. And again, she was an outsider. She didn't have the right to reach out and grab Jesus' sleeve. Like, that was not a thing that she really had permission to do. In fact, most teachers would never have allowed this woman to come near them because they don't want to deal with the unclean thing. And yet when she reaches out and she, like Jesus is theoretically ceremonially unclean as soon as she touches his, his shirt, right? So she grabs him and he turns around and rather than be like, whoa, get off me. You're not supposed to touch me. He looks at her, he's like, take heart daughter. Like I care about you as a person. He sees this woman, he recognizes her needs and he loves her in that moment. And we think about kids. Kids get special access to parents, right? Like you think about what the the kid to parent relationship is. The kids have special access. Like if you come over my house, you have to knock on the door unless I know you're coming. If I know you're coming and I've told you, you can come in, you can just come in. That's fine. But you need to. We need to have that conversation ahead of time. Also, if you don't show up announced you need to knock right like you need to have some permission you don't just get to walk in and help yourself to my fridge that's there's boundaries there right my boys don't have that boundary they know the code on the front door they're allowed to come in it's like they have special access right if if one of my boys is like hey dad i need a hug i'm like yeah absolutely let's you know like i'm i'm gonna be there emotionally available for them as much as i possibly can because they're my kids. They get to interrupt more than anybody else. They do interrupt more than anybody else. (laughs) But the point is like they get special access because they're my boys, right? Like there's a relationship there that I don't have with other people. And so when Jesus says, take heart daughter, he's saying, you don't, you're not an interruption. You have permission to interrupt me. You're my daughter. That's the permission that he's granting her. He's saying this tug on my sleeve, that's the bare minimum that you can do. You have permission to do whatever you want. You're you're part of the family, you're you're one of mine. And that's how Jesus treats her. She's not an outsider to Jesus. She's a part of the family. And then he confirms that with, with what he says next. His last phrase is, your faith has made you well. And so she has permission to interrupt and he gives her what she needs. And that's his response, yes, be, be encouraged, I see you, I validate you, you are part of the family, here is what you asked for. You may have it. And it's not inconvenient for me to give it, I'm not cranky about this, you're my daughter, you get this. This is a part of, of, of the package. I, I think sometimes when we think about this, your faith has made you well as a phrase, we kind of twist that around and we're like, okay, so if I just have faith, Like the faith thing is the thing that'll work, right? And we kind of get twisted around about what it is that actually heals. And it's not the fact that she had enough faith. That wasn't it. It was that she reached out to the right object of her faith. She had faith in Jesus. Like it's not the volume of faith. It's not the type of faith. It's not some magical code that she had. It was, I trust that Jesus can do this. And that was the thing that was, was rewarded. We're sometimes tempted to think that we can control it, right? Like, well, okay, so she grabbed Jesus' sleeve. If I just grab Jesus' sleeve and I say that I have the right amount of faith, then Jesus will give me what I want. And it's not about that. It's actually about that relationship. Jesus recognizing, I love you and I'm giving you this because I care about you. John Corson says this. Was her theology correct? No. Was her knowledge complete? No. She was acting out of superstition. But the Lord didn't say, since your theology is messed up, I won't help you. No, he's a savior who heeds the cries of his children, even though their phrases are amiss or their theology is not right. God honors the person who in desperation is seeking to touch him. And so it's her desperation in turning to Jesus that causes Jesus to turn around and validate her. It's to reach out and grab Jesus more than anything else. We come to Jesus in faith. We trust that he's a good God, that he loves us, that he'll give us what we need. Maybe not what we ask for, but he'll give us what we need. And this woman received the healing that she needed. She was seen by Jesus. She was validated by Jesus and she was healed. Not because she was so fantastic, but because Jesus is that compassionate. My, my application question is a little bit weird after that conversation, okay? So bear with me. <laughs> How much do I try to maintain control even when I come to Jesus in faith? And I ask that because I don't think that this woman felt like she could manipulate Jesus. But I think sometimes when we reach out for Jesus, we're trying to figure out what the code is to, to make Jesus give us what we want. Like she was desperate and sometimes we're less desperate and so we're trying to figure out how to make Jesus give us our answer. And and it really comes down to whether or not we trust Jesus to be God and whether we just want to honor him for who he is and we're desperate for him or if we're we just want what we want. So we have to kind of look at like, are we negotiating with God? Are we trying to bargain with God? And I ask that because we slide into that really easily. Okay, God, here's what I want. Here's why I want it. Let me do these 14 things and then I know that you'll be happy enough to give it to me. Rather than trying to just say, listen, Jesus, I'm desperate for you. I need you. She didn't have any of that. She's just like, I don't have answers. Jesus, she grabbed onto him. So that kind of wraps up her story. And you know that the other guy's like, by the way, I've got a dead daughter at home that you're not paying attention to. Can, can we focus on my priorities for a minute, right? Like he's equally desperate and feels like Jesus isn't paying attention. So let's get back to Jairus in verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. So Jesus doesn't just heal, he raises the dead. (laughs) Jesus loves both of these women, right? He loves the little girl. He loves this woman that's been bleeding. He, He cares about both of them and he responds to both of them with compassion. However, He wasn't super compassionate to the crowd, (laughs) right? He shows up and he's like, there's a crowd, there's flute players. And he's like, you're gone, get out of here. No, we're not having this right now. Like everybody's gone. It's not family that Jesus is throwing out. It's people that are not actually connected. So in that day and age, if there's a funeral, the bigger the funeral, the more important the person was, the more people cared. And so a lot of times at, big families, they would pay for professional mourners to show up, right? So you make sure that you have enough people that look like they care because you paid them. So that was culturally kind of expected. Uh, But so when it says Jesus throws out the flute players and the mourners, it's not like, you know, Auntie grace that was sitting there and like, no, you get out of here. No, these are people that were paid to show up. They didn't actually care. And so Jesus is like, listen, this is not the time or the place for fake compassion. Like, Jesus actually cares. He actually cares about what's going on, but he's not going to put up with people that are faking it. And I think part of the application for us becomes, am I faking it until I care, or do I actually care? Because it's fairly easy to to kind of fake compassion. Some of the time. (laughs) But... It's, it's, we know that the, res, the right response is compassion and we don't actually care, right? And so we kind of respond with like, okay, I guess I have to show this level of compassion. Like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Like, how do I get out of this conversation without it being awkward? Like I'm trying to bail here. And, and that's just like a culturally acceptable response of like, I'm sorry for your whatever. I'm, I feel bad that you're going through this. Oh, and then just kind of move on. And like, okay, well, I'm gonna make sure I don't call them for two weeks because they're going through that. And I don't wanna deal with that, right? And so we have to ask, like, how do we genuinely show compassion to people around us? Not not say that we care, not pretend that we care, not do like one thing to sort of check the box. Yup, I care about that person. I got that out of my way. But actually be like, you're a person that's created in the image of God, and I know that Jesus loves you, and I want to show you that Jesus loves you by the way that I am. And I say that because there's this huge contrast between how Jesus treats people and how the fake mourners. Like they're there, they're in the house. They're like, yay, we're sitting here and, and having our little like party. But then as soon as Jesus shows up, you're like, he's not sleeping, she's dead, or she's not dead, she's sleeping. Everybody immediately bursts into laughter. You're not mourning and then like flipping that emotional switch to laughter right away. Like they don't actually care. And Jesus then after he throws the fake mourners out, Jesus goes in and takes the girl by the hand. So some commentators look at it and they're like, well, we're not sure that she's dead. Right, so you read through and Jesus never says she's dead. So they're like, well, maybe she's not actually dead. Maybe she's in a coma and Jesus knows that she's not dead. And so he's just showing up to wake her up from the coma. That seems to minimize the way that people understand death. Like, I don't think that they were blown away by like comas versus death in the first century. Like, Nope, they'd seen people dead before. They had a pretty good idea of what that is. Um, And also death in that society would have been much more personal. Like there's no professional embalmers. There's no hospitals. Like when someone died in your family, you were there. You were physically present. Like you knew what death looked like. I think this is probably a lot more about Jesus making a comment on what death actually is and his power over it. So when we think about death, death is, is really for us a separation, right? So there's a person that's alive that we have a relationship with. And then when they're dead, it's not that they cease to exist, but we don't have the capacity to have a relationship with them anymore. If they're physically dead, they're gone. And so that's a separation. It's a break in a relationship. And so for Jesus, that's not really a thing because Jesus is spiritually alive in ways that we can't imagine Sleep is a temporary separation, like we get that, right? Like you fall asleep, you're gonna wake up in a couple of hours and then we'll have that, this conversation then and it's not a big deal. It's, it's maybe the difference for us between a friend moving to San, San Diego permanently and a friend going to San Diego for a weekend, right? Like there's a temporary nature to sleep that we understand. Yup, you're asleep, you're gonna come back. And then there's a permanent nature to death that we can't, we can't comprehend. And what Jesus, I think, is probably saying here is if you're connected to Jesus, if you're connected to him, then death isn't nearly as permanent as you thought. It's much closer to sleep. It's much more temporary. And so when Jesus says she's sleeping, he's not saying her body hasn't physically died. He's saying her body has physically died, but it's only going to be for a couple minutes because I'm going to go in there. uh, I'm going to make her body physically alive again. And so when Jesus gets in that room, he, like things don't work anymore the way that they thought they would, right? <laughs> she's dead, she's laying there and Jesus just walks in and takes her by the hand and he's like, all right, wake up, right? That's less difficult than waking up your high school student, right? <laughs> like just walk in and take their hand. Like, no, you're awake now, you're done. And so for Jesus, raising someone from the dead is less effort than waking someone up from a dead sleep because that's who Jesus is, right? So he walks in and he has the compassion. He's great at waking people up, right? Like he's not yelling at him, shaking the bed, like, get up, get up. Like, he's just like, hey, no, it's time to get up, hon. Like, let's go. And he, he takes her hand and, and he raises her from the dead. It's not any more intense than you waking your kid up, right? It's it's less intense than that. and. It's not hard for him. He doesn't have to do anything special. He just goes in there and he's like, nope, time to get up. Let's go. There's one other reason why Jesus taking her hand is significant. So we talked about uncleanness and the woman couldn't touch Jesus because of uncleanness. So in the Old Testament, uncleanness is always passed on with touch. So if you're unclean and you touch somebody else, they're unclean now too. Holiness is never passed along with touch. There's all these rituals you have to do. You have to like purify things, you have to clean them up, you have to do all this thing. And yet Jesus makes things clean with a touch. Like we think back, we talked about when Jesus healed the leper. Je- Jesus, isn't, You're not supposed to touch a leper. Jesus reach out, he touches the leper, the leper's healed. Right? Jesus isn't supposed to touch that woman. She should have made him ceremonially unclean. And what happened? Jesus made her clean. That's not supposed to happen. You can't touch a dead body. Dead bodies are ceremonially unclean. Jesus reached out, he takes the girl's hand. And what happens? He's not ceremonially unclean, she's alive. And so Jesus transmits holiness with a touch. Like Jesus doesn't get infected with our sin. He communicates his holiness back to us. And honestly, that's why we worship him. (laughs) Because he's God and he can do that. Only Jesus has power over death. Jesus raising this little girl is a little tiny taste of the victory that he wins over death. Like this isn't Jesus like maxing out his power be like, oh, maybe I can get this girl to rise from the dead. Jesus is like, no, I do this because I can and because I'm here. He isn't simply some good guy that had compassion on this girl and this woman. He's the God of the universe who had compassion on all of us and came down and lived in the flesh as the God of the universe and walked around and healed people because he loved him and because they needed him to. And he raised people from the dead because he's the God of the universe standing there. In John 11, Jesus is about to raise his good friend, Lazarus from the dead. And he's talking to Lazarus's sister and he says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus doesn't have power over life and death. Jesus is life. He is the source of eternal life. He's the only one that controls life and death. And when he allowed himself to die on the cross that wasn't because he lost control for a minute that was because he said i'm choosing to allow myself to die in order to pay for the sins of the world because i love them and i want a relationship with them he allowed wicked men to kill him he allowed himself to be killed for our sins he allowed himself to suffer out of love for us and so when we come to him in faith we just say lord jesus I know that you have compassion on me and I want a relationship with you. I know that you've done the work. You've you've paid the price for my sin. You've done everything that you need to accept me into your family. I want a relationship with you. And he does that. He brings us into his family, into a relationship with him. And we have a relationship with the compassionate God of the universe because of the work that he's done. So my question here is this. Have I accepted Jesus as my compassionate savior? The hard part about this for a lot of us is that we start there, we accept that, and then it's hard to conceive of Jesus as truly being compassionate after that. Like we know that Jesus loved us enough to die for us, but we're not sure that he loves us enough to heal us right now. And and that's where I have to kind of like, this sounds like not a fun response, but that's where you have to look back to the fact that he's actually God in his compassion. So as God, he loves us and he died for us, even though we didn't really think we needed that, but he loved us through that. And he brought us to a point where we could have that relationship with him. And so now after he's done that, it's really hard for me to say, God, are you compassionate to my pain right now? Do you hear me right now? Are you gonna heal me right now? And it's hard because as God, he says, you're gonna to have to wait on this one because the timing's not right. And, and that's, a hard, that's a hard answer to hear. That's a hard thing to, to accept in our lives. But when we look for healing from Jesus, we have to realize that the real thing that we need to do is just reach out and grab him and trust him that he's gonna do it. And, and I'd point you to Jarius on this one. Because Jesus, Jairus reached out and he's like, my daughter's dead, I don't have any cho- choices, I don't have any options, Jesus, you have to heal me. And Jesus says, yes, I'm gonna heal you. And then he goes and as he's walking, this other woman grabs him and Jesus stops. And you know this is killing Jairus. He's like, she's dead, Jesus. Like, you, you don't understand, we don't have time to goof around with this woman. Like, this is not the time or the place. Can we come back to her? She's been bleeding for 12 years. She will figure it out for another three hours, Right? And Jesus is like, nope, we're gonna put this one on pause. We're gonna deal with this because I love this woman too. And he deals with her and then he goes to Jairus and he raises her daughter. Jesus' timing is not necessarily where I want it to be. Jesus' response in a moment is not necessarily my preference. But at the same time, if Jesus actually has the right timing, if he's actually God, then he's the one that I need to trust, right? Jesus does heal, but it's in his timing. And his timing is the compassionate part. Sometimes there's things I need to learn. Sometimes there's things other people need to go through. We don't know what the answer is on timing, but we, knew that, we do know that Jesus is compassionate, that he loves us in that moment, regardless of what our needs are. So my last question is this, where do I need to trust Jesus' timing and lean into his compassion? And, and like I said, this is the hard part because... It's easy to see Jesus as compassionate when Jesus is healing. In the moment that he heals, you're like, yes, you saw it, you understood. But that's not the only time that Jesus is compassionate. He's compassionate all the time. Whether or not he heals, sometimes the timing is a struggle for us. So for for my conclusion, what I wanna do is I wanna run through this logically because the story has a lot of emotional pull, and I get that. But I want to run through this logically so that we understand sort of clearly what the progression is rather than trying to to just feel our way through this, okay? So it starts with logically, have I accepted Jesus as my compassionate savior? That has to be the starting point. We recognize that we need God, that we're far away from him, that we need a relationship with Jesus. So we say, yes, Jesus, you're my savior. And I know that you love me for who I am, for where I'm at, no matter what. And then once we've accepted Jesus grace, the next step is to sort of reach out to the people around us that need that compassion. That's the natural next step. So in the same way that Jesus is compassionate toward me, I need to reach out to other people. How do I respond to an interruption from someone in need? How can I genuinely show compassion to the people around me? Jesus has shown me love. He's he's allowed himself to be interrupted for me. I need to allow that to flow out to other people. But even as we do that, We have to reinforce in our minds the fact that Jesus is actually compassionate, right? We struggle to trust Jesus' love. We struggle to trust the fact that he actually has our best interest in mind. So we look at him as God and we say, how much do I try and maintain control even when I come to Jesus in faith? Am I willing to let go? Am I willing to just trust him for who he is? And then as a part of that also, where do I need to trust Jesus' timing? Acknowledging that he's God, acknowledging that he loves me, but he's also in control I need to just lean into his compassion in a moment. Because once we've experienced his grace and love, we can turn that outward, but we also need to make sure that we're reinforcing that in the way that we relate to God. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. After I do that, Roberto is going to come up and we're going to have a time of, of breaking our bread before we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent Jesus to show us how much you cared about us that we have a relationship with you because of Jesus. And and our relationship with you is is mediated by Jesus and we see your love in a a given moment in the way that Jesus treats the people around him. We recognize that when we have needs, when we don't have any options and we just reach out in desperation and grab you, that it's you that look back and say, I love you, you're my child and, and I will heal you, but you have to trust me on time I pray that that would be the thing that we, we, we trust in, that, that your grace and your compassion are the thing that we focus on uh, and that we allowed ourselves to be, to be moved by that. We pray in your name.